We meet today in Isaiah chapter 40. This chapter brings us to the final major division of the book of Isaiah. Much of Isaiah's message in this section is of comfort, specifically to the exiles, concerning their return. These chapters were written by the prophet Isaiah through prophetic revelation for exiled Israel of the 60th century. In chapters 40 to chapter 48, Isaiah warns them against adopting the beliefs and attitudes of the pagans among whom they would live. Now there is a sharp contrast between the first and the last sections of this book. The first section was a revelation of the sovereign upon the throne, while this final section is a revelation of the Savior in the place of suffering. In chapter 6 of Isaiah, we saw the crown. In chapter 53, we shall see the cross. The theme in the first section was the government of God. In this last section, we see the grace of God. So the opening words of Isaiah chapter 40, opening that final major section, comfort, yes, that those few words set the mood and the tempo for this final section. The message from God is comfort rather than the judgment which we saw in the first section of Isaiah. The change of subject matter has led actually some of the liberal critics to postulate that there is the Deutero-Isaiah hypothesis. From this, they find this hypothesis. Because the subjects are entirely different, they suppose that these parts were written by different writers or two Isaiahs. Well, a change of message certainly does not necessitate a change of authorship. The message has changed, but not the messenger. In any case, our God is a God of judgment, and it is equally true. He is also a God of grace. Does that mean that there are two gods? Perish the thought. That is not the idea. So we need to keep in mind that Isaiah is a messenger of God and not of himself. So he speaks God's judgment and it is equally true that the God who will judge us is also the God of grace. He's a God who judges, but he is also a God who loves us. In this section of Isaiah, the thunder and the lightning of Sinai are subdued smoothed by the wonderful message of grace which comes from God. So the message of comfort from God comes. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Isaiah 40 verse 1. Now all the woes and the burdens or judgments of the first sections now have been lifted because now there is a burden bearer. One who later on will actually fulfill everything that Isaiah said about him. He will be the one to give the invitation, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Matthew 11 verse 28. So the Lord Jesus Christ lifts up burdens. Burdens are lifted at Calvary, my friend. So he speaks, comfort, yes, comfort. This is a sign of yearning from the pulsating heart of God. Our God is the God of all comfort. That is why Paul speaks of him in Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 to verse 4. He says, 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies, and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Isn't that interesting? So the Holy Spirit is called the Comforter. The Lord Jesus said, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, and he may abide with you forever. That is the Comforter, according to John 14, verse 16. He is our Comforter today. Speak comfort to Jerusalem, and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. For she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Isaiah 40 verse 2 Now it has been suggested that when there was an indebtedness or a mortgage on a house in Israel, the fact was written on a paper, a legal document, and it was put on the doorpost so that all the neighbors and the friends would actually know that they had a mortgage on their place. Another copy was kept by the one who held the mortgage. When the debt was paid, the second copy, the carbon copy, was nailed over the other doorpost so that all might see that the debt has been paid. Now, this is the meaning that we hear here. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. You see, my friend, the sins of Jerusalem were paid for by the one who suffered outside the gates. This is the difference between the dealings of God with his people in the Old Testament and with us today. It actually separates Christianity from all pagan religions and from the Mosaic law. The difference is all wrapped up in the word propitiation. In the heathen religions, the people bring an offering to their gods to appease them. And that is what propitiation means. Many people think that that is what it means in the Bible. That they have to do something because God is angry to win him over. Now, the people in the heathen religions are always doing that because their gods are always angry and difficult to get along with. Their feelings are easily hurt, and they are not very friendly. The fact is that sin, man's sin, has alienated him from God. But it is God who did something, not men doing something. And today, my friend, God is propitious. You don't have to do anything to win him over. Propitiation is toward God, and reconciliation is toward us. God has done everything that needs to be done. Today we are asked to be reconciled to God, not to do something to win him over. God is already won over. That is what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. We need only accept what Christ has done. This is the word of comfort for a lost world. And we have received a double portion of the grace of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Isaiah 40, verse 7 and verse 8. 
Now, this is a glorious affirmation, my friend, of the total sufficiency and eternal existence of God's word. Regardless of the decay of nature, human frailty, and changing circumstances, God's word is sure. He gives absolute promises which certainly will be accomplished. His word lives and breathes into the hearts of those who, through the ages, have been regenerated. Man is feigned, frail and feeble, but the word of God is strong, sure and secure. God's word is our hiding place, a foundation upon which we can rest. It is our sword and buckler, high tower, protection, security and salvation. In First Peter 1 verse 23 to 25 we read, Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God which lives and abides forever, because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass, the grass withers, and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. Isn't that amazing? It is only the gospel that gives eternal life to man, who naturally is just a transitory creature on the earth. And so the comfort that God is promising his people is based upon his abiding word. Now note the following message. O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift up, be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Isaiah 40 verse 9. You see, this is the verse from which we even, the other hymn or the other chorus come from. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But what is their message? Behold your God. Your God reigns. Now here, good tidings is the gospel. And the good tidings of John the Baptist was, Behold your God. Until you have seen Jesus Christ as God manifest in the flesh, you haven't really seen him, my friend. You must come to him as he is, not just as a man, but as God, Emmanuel, God with us. If he is just a human being, he cannot be my savior. But he is Emmanuel and he is my savior. How wonderful this is, my friend. A word of comfort. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. Isaiah 40 verse 10. Now Isaiah as he generally does, draws together the first and the second comings of Christ. This verse looks forward to his second coming. Actually, the gospel includes both the first and the second comings of Christ. We are apt to get sidetracked and put all the emphasis on Jesus' first coming or on his second coming. Well, let's put our emphasis on both comings, which is the totality of the gospel. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Isaiah 40 verse 11. 
the Lord Jesus took the title of a shepherd when he came the first time. He said, I am a good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for his sheep, according to John 10 verse 11. And he also said, I lay down my life for the sheep. John 10 verse 15. Now we move to the next section, which deals with creation as a revelation of God. And because of the revelation of God, people must be comforted. So this next verses introduce the section that speaks of the greatness of God as our creator. Who has measured the waters in the hull of his hand, measured heaven with a span, and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance? Isaiah 40 verse 12. The question is, who has done that? To begin with, when you get out into space, you don't weigh anything. So who is doing the weighing today? And where is it going to be weighed? This verse now makes me feel like singing, How great thou art. It's only God who can do these things. Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has taught him, with whom did he take counsel, and who instructed him? And taught him in the paths of justice. Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding. Isaiah 40 verse 13 to 14. You see God knows no equal. Nor is there anyone to whom he can go for advice. He stands alone. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to him? Isaiah 40 verse 18. These questions are all rising up to a climax where God cannot be compared to anything, even to the idols that were around. You and I know very little, my friend. All we know is what he has revealed in the word of God. And I don't think he has told us everything to begin with. We can't even comprehend what he has already told us in his word. And now Isaiah is contrasting God to the idols. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare him? Now here is the first rather ironic attack that Isaiah will make against idolatry. Having set the premise, to whom will you liken God? And he attacks idolatry now. Isaiah 40 verse 19. The workman molds an image. The goldsmith overspreads it with gold, and the silversmith casts silver chains. You see, my friend here, the rich people can make a very ornate idol. They have a, a rich god, so to say, when they have made something like that. But again, it is simply the product of man's hands. Isaiah says, Whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeks for himself a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter. Isaiah 40 verse 20. You see, the poor person can have only a crude idol, so he whittles out a god for a piece of wood. How preposterous idolatry is. While the rich person can even look for a wood that is even stronger. Isaiah continues to ask these questions. Have you not known? Have you not heard? 
Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? Isaiah 40 verse 21. What is Isaiah's point here? Isaiah's point is it is utterly ridiculous to compare God to some dumb idol. Why have you missed the lesson? Why have you not learned? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Isaiah 40 verse 22. Now, the circle of the earth here actually refers to the horizon and views God as seated majestically above the earth, looking down. Now the Old Testament does not teach that the earth is flat, but scientists in the days of Columbus early on in, in history taught actually the theory that the earth is flat. Those so-called scientists did not pay attention to the word of God in that day, and they missed something. And I think scientists are missing something today as well. It is clearly stated in this verse that the earth is a sphere, a circle, positioned in an even greater universe. And that is God's throne. And that God's throne is far beyond the penetration of the most powerful telescopes as they search out the limitless vault of space. You see... Now, you, the comparison here has dealt down with the idols, but even those who claim to understand what is happening in space, God is much outside of space because he is a sovereign, almighty God. And so God is inviting us to consideration, and that is his call to us. In the light of all this, God calls us to consider. Why do you say, O Jacob? And speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over my God. Isaiah 40 verse 27. You see here, God knows about the difficulties and the problems of his people. If you belong to him, he is able to quiet the storms of life. But sometimes there are lessons for his own to learn during the storm. When you find yourself in the midst of a storm, instead of sitting and weeping and criticizing God, why don't you look around and find out what lesson he wants you to learn? God will not let you go through the trials unless he has something for you to learn. The lesson may be this. Have you not known? Have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither fence, nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Even the youth shall faint and be weary. The young man shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Isaiah 40 verse 28 verse 30 to 31. Amazing questions here. You see, the questions of verse 28 are designed to call Israel's attention to the folly of her attitude. God is entirely free from all that is defective and imperfect in man. If he were to grow weary, all nature and every man would fail and drop into nothingness. There is no denial that God can be known. The entire context strongly argues that he can be known. However, 
man must trust God for deliverance because his ways are incomprehensible and beyond the understanding of man. God is also able to supply man with strength and energy, even man's very existence, because out of his divine abundance, he can supply strength to even the most weary man. The young men were those in prime physical condition and most fit for athletic contest. Yet even these tire and become weary. The ego is a common metaphor for strength, according to Exodus 19 verse 4, Deuteronomy 32 verse 11. But God's strength is available for all who wait in patience for God's purpose to be carried out. Also note that there are three degrees of power here, and several expositors have likened them to the three stages of Christian growth that you have in First John chapter 2, verse 12 to verse 14. These stages, three of them of growth are the young Christian shall mount up with wings as eagles, and then the adult Christian shall run, and thirdly, the mature Christian shall walk. My friend, Regardless of who you are or where you are, if you are going to move with God through this earth, it will cost you something. But God will furnish you with the strength, whatever your condition is. If you need strength to walk, he will give it to you. If you need strength to fly, he has that also for you. That is the wonderful chapter we have here revealing the comfort of God as our creator, as our savior, and our sustainer. What more comfort would you have, my friend? You can have copies of the notes and outlines used for these Living Word for Africa programs, so you can follow them as you listen. For your copies, please write to the Living Word for Africa, P.O. Box 4232, Kempton Park 1620, South Africa. Please say which book of the Bible you want them for and be sure to include your name and contact information. Let me give you that address again. It's The Living Word for Africa, P.O. Box 4232, Kempton Park 1620, South Africa.